to join you guys. No! Yeah. Before we start, Jared, would you lead us in the prayer? Our Lord, Father, we come before you now for the first time that you've given us to study your word, and that you come to this camp and be uplifted and encouraged. I pray that we will um, have a few days um, left as we have a day left. I pray that we will be able to encourage each other more. last night at Nehemiah 8 and the request the people make to have the book of the law read. It was just encouraging to see their eagerness to hear the book of the law standing for maybe six hours or so, hearing the book read and explained. And you just see the respect they have for God's work. Sometimes people have a hard time with that, but since God's word is our means of knowing what he wants from us, it's a means of knowing his will and his mind and his heart, we owe the word of God the respect we owe to God. It's his message to us. You know, if, if, if somebody doesn't respect what you say, they really don't respect you. If, if they respect you, then they're going to listen to what you say. Because what you say is an expression of your will and thinking and attitude and heart to them. So you recognize through the respect these people give the word, they're really respecting the Lord and they want to know his will and, uh, and everything that he's written to them. So this was a very encouraging day. And just a very encouraging uh, attitude on the part of these people. Eventually we'll talk just a little bit about the attitude we ought to have toward the word and some things that we ought to be doing with that. But I'd like for you to see the response. You know, how do you react if you've heard the word for six hours? You know, what, what, what should that provoke in us? So would somebody read chapter 8 verses 9 to 12? Nehemiah, Nehemiah, who was the governor, as the priests and scribes, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God, do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. And he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be, do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, be still, for the day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, and sent portions of the rejoice greatly, because they understood the words that were declared to them. Okay, their beginning reaction was what? They were sad. They were they were mourning, weeping. Why? I think that's it. Because they recognized as they heard the word their own failures to please God 
and to live up to his standards, that ought to provoke grief in us. It's not surprising that when they read the word, it, it showed them how far away from the Lord they were. That's one reason sometimes people shy away from reading the word, because it makes them feel guilty. Because it shows them, it reminds them of their failures to please the Lord. And sometimes when you find somebody who's making all kinds of excuses for why they don't have time to read the Bible, time's really not the real problem. The willingness to do it is because they don't want to confront the message. So they are originally weeping, uh, but Nehemiah, Ezra, the Levites here that are, are leading them, what do they say to them? What should their reaction be? Celebration. They ought to be celebrating because... The joy of the Lord is their strength. Yeah. They are hearing the word of the Lord. They are understanding it. This is a great blessing to them. It is a great joy. Uh, they, they should view this as, as a wonderful moment, an exciting time. They really are hearing and understanding God's will. Now, obviously, there's room for both reactions in different situations, but here they lead the people to uh, have a, a feast to the Lord, a day specially dedicated to the Lord, in which they do celebrate the fact that they've been able to hear God's message. So that's what needs to happen. We need to hear the word it ought to both produce in us at times grief when we've not measured up and certainly great joy because the word is a wonderful treasure. We want to hear it. We want to know it. It's exciting. I don't know that that's always the way we feel about the word. I can remember for me when I was like 12, 13, 14, I felt like I really ought to be reading the Bible. But I did not enjoy it. It wasn't, it wasn't fun to me. It was boring. Partially because I didn't get it very well. And so I would, I would make a rule for myself that I'd read the Bible 30 minutes a day. But that would quickly become, well, I'll read it an hour tomorrow. <laughs> I'll read an hour and a half the next day. And every once in a while, I'd have to grab myself a pardon and start over again. <laughs> and uh, it was just not fun. I didn't like it. And, and really, if you'd have told me when I was 13 that I would get to where I really enjoyed it, I, I would have thought you were lying to me. But by the time I was 15 or 16, I had made myself enough that I was actually starting to understand it a lot better. And the better I understood it, the more enjoyable it was. And it was really, it was really weird to me that by the time I was 16, 17, 18, instead of making myself read the Bible a half an hour a day, I was, I was working on trying to find more time because I wanted to study it more. I wanted to, to learn it. I think sometimes we may have to sort of make ourselves until we get to the point we, we develop a taste for it. You know, some things, some foods are like that. Some of my favorite foods right now, I didn't like the first time I put them in my mouth, but as I... I ate them more and more. They really grew on me, and I got to realizing this really tastes good. <laughs> and the word does. You may not be there yet. It may not be as enjoyable to you yet. 
So you may have to work on developing a taste for it, but you're not going to develop a taste for it unless you keep eating it. Now, there are some things that I think can help us to enjoy Bible study more. I like what some of you guys have heard from uh, Tom Holly and some of the camps, kind of the intensive Bible reading where you take a book and you just read it over and over again. That has helped me a lot because I find myself sometimes, if I just read through something, you know, sometimes I'm inattentive and sometimes it just doesn't come alive as much even when I'm paying attention the first time I read through it. It's kind of like the first time you read through something, you're getting acquainted with it. You know, you're just kind of experiencing it for the first time. You're not quite seeing it. But if you take something and you read it again, and you read it again, and you read it again, um, you know, so Tom would suggest maybe picking a small book and reading it every day. That's kind of cool. You know, to take Philippians or Colossians or whatever and read it every day for a month. Can you imagine what a, how much that book would live in you if you read it every day for a month? I mean, you get to where you practically have it memorized. And, you know, one of the things that, that God wants us to do is to be meditating on his work. You know, well, it, it's hard to meditate on something you can't remember. So if you've got it in you, you're just reading it over and over again. It's kind of like a song. What happens to if, if you hear a song several times, then what starts happening to you? Yeah, you can't get it out, you know, even if you want to. You know, every time you turn around, that song is just replaying in your mind. That's what we want the word to do. Good songs, that's not a bad thing either. But we want the word to be just replaying in our mind. And then maybe take longer books and read them every week. You know, what if you took, you know, a gospel or, or, or you know, a, a longer book in the Old Testament, whatever, and you just read it every week for three or four months? You know, the same thing would happen. So I think that's often helpful, especially if you feel like, you know, this isn't a lot of fun for me. I think the more you read a book, and the more you think about it, and the more you replay it in your mind, the more enjoyable it is, because you really start getting to see what it's saying. It makes more sense. And the more you see into the word, the more it grabs you and really encourages you. Thoughts and comments on all of this? Jeff? There are aspects of the text that don't jump out at you first. What happens to me is once I become familiar with the text, I feel like I know what the text says. I go back to read it, and it's just like, yeah, okay, I know what this says. Well, well it's just, okay, and I'm pretty much skipping over it just because my mind is blanking out because I feel like I know what it says. But what I find is when I sit down and teach somebody else or, or study with somebody who doesn't know the Bible, I read the same text with them. And I see it through their eyes as having never seen it before, and I see all kinds of things that I have never noticed. I've done the same thing over and over again. I agree 100%. So how can we read the Bible that way, even if we're reading it on our own? Now, reading it with somebody else and helping them, that's really helpful. But, you know, you might try reading it out loud. I find even for myself when I'm reading Nehemiah out loud or whatever as I'm teaching it. That's helpful. You know, because we do tend to just not even see things sometimes when we're reading it silently, then when we're forced to actually read it all, it's like, wow, I never noticed that. You know, I think reading it with concentration and focus, 
Sometimes maybe even. I think it varies with the person. Everybody's kind of got their own learning style. But, but maybe jotting down some notes as you're reading it. Um, maybe doing something with it. You know, read a story and then pick out the key phrase in the story. Things like that. Anything you can do with it that forces you to look back at it and try to, to do something with it is helpful. Simon. I also like um, reading from a different translation. It's not my normal translation. And what often happens to me is as I'm reading along, I read a word and I think that word didn't appear in my translation. <laughs> I go back to my translation and lo and behold, that word was there. I've been skipping over that word in my mind the whole time. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, that's cool. Other thoughts? Gary. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's a great point. And it's amazing. The more you read it, and you think, well, I've read this so much, there's nothing more to learn. I mean, you know, this was interesting to me years ago. I use this sometimes, but Simon probably doesn't know it. But, you know, I, I studied Mark with people. That's what I start with almost with anybody. You know, non-Christians especially, but most Christians, if I start somewhere, I start in Mark. So I've studied Mark a zillion times. And I was studying with Simon and two or three other young preachers uh, several years ago. And we'd studied a lot of different books. And they decided they wanted to study Mark. Now, I'd learned a ton in the study. I kind of led the study, but every, we all learned from each other. And they were really careful students and really brought up a lot of very helpful thoughts. But I thought... I'm not going to learn anything in Mark, because I already know Mark. I mean, I've been through Mark, you know, several hundred times. I've taught it over and over again. It was amazing. It's amazing how much stuff going through with them, they pointed out to me, that I never noticed. I mean, and it's not like some difficult, deep, dark, you know, in, in some, uh, you know, in the Greek or, or in some, you know. It was like stuff that was right there. You know, stuff that was really pretty obvious, I've been teaching and teaching and teaching it and things that I just never realized. I've never seen. There's so much in the scriptures. It's exciting. Other thoughts? Well, look at 13 to 18. Somebody read that. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people, the priests and the Levites, came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in moves during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees make boots as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made boots for themselves, each on its own roof, and in their courts, and in the courts of the house of God, and in the square at the water gate, 
and in the square at the gate of Ephraim, and all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in booths, for from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so, and there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Well, second day, who comes together with Ezra and the priests and Levites? The heads of the household. Yeah. The leaders, the priests, the Levites, they all come together with Ezra. For what reason? To learn more. They want to they understand it better. We've had six hours the day before reading and uh, having it explained, but that's not enough for them. It just uh, whetted their appetite. Well, as they're studying and reading more, what do they find out? Yes. The Feast of Tabernacles was a key Old Testament feast in the seventh month, starting on the 15th day. And one of the things the scriptures teach about it is that they were supposed to like cut down branches and all and kind of make themselves little, little uh, you know, uh, temporary structures to live in during that seven-day feast. Now, they've been observing the Feast of Tabernacles. You can read about that in 1 Kings and 2 Chronicles and Ezra and so forth. But evidently, they had not been following that detail. I think the point of doing that was to remind them of the time in the wilderness. Maybe to help them appreciate what they had in their houses that God had brought them into in the land of Canaan. And so once they read that, that they're supposed to live in these booths, what do they do? Yeah, they start cutting down branches and building these booths all over the place and living in them during that seven-day feast. Now, how long had it been since they had done it that way? Since the days of Joshua. Since the days of Joshua. Now, you remember what part of Israelite history Joshua was associated with? Yeah, the Exodus to some extent is shortly after the Exodus he shows up, but especially he was the one who led them into the conquest, conquering the land. Now, after they conquered the land, who were the leaders that were uh, that arose occasionally? What do we call them? Judges. And at the end of the judges period, what do the people ask for? Kings. How many kings were there of the United Kingdom? Three, and how long did they each reign? Forty years. Forty years. And then what happened to the kingdom? Divided. It divided. And uh, about how long did the northern kingdom last until they went into Assyrian captivity? Anybody know? Fourteen years. A little over 200 years. And then Judah lasted another 135 or 40 years after that. And then they had the captivity, 
And then they'd come back and live for nearly a hundred years. Do you know how much time there was between Joshua and Nehemiah? More than a thousand years. Close to a thousand years. Now, if I, this is amazing to me. And I realize there may be some other explanations of this, but it looks to me like in the text, for nearly a thousand years, they had not been keeping that detail. They had not been living in the booths during the Feast of Tabernacles. Well, what do you do if you haven't been doing something for a long time? You know, you're reading in the Bible, it says this, but you've never seen it done that way. And you check with your parents and they've never seen it done that way. And you talk to your grandparents and they've never seen it done that way. And you ask them, well, what about the people who were old back when you were children? Had they ever talked about doing it that way? And, and you, don't, you don't know of any Christians who've ever done it that way. But it's what, it's what the Bible says. You can read it and you carefully study it and make sure you've got it in context and all that. Well, what do you do? Yeah, you do what God's word says. It really doesn't matter what we've always done. It matters what the Lord says. And so you really appreciate the, the courage and just the determination to follow the Lord's will. They, they're not reading it just to be able to check it off and say, ah, we, we got our Bible reading in today. They're reading it to listen to it and follow it. So that was really encouraging, really impressive. Thoughts and comments on all that? Yeah. yeah, this is a pretty silly and wacky command, at least what it seems to put to me about in their time. I mean, okay, so we just built this nice wall, and now we're going to live <laughs> in tents. I mean, if our enemies made fun of us for building a wall, would they say they saw us taking branches and making tents and things? But they saw this reckless obedience. It's a great example for us. Yeah, and they may have been doing it inside their walled cities where they put them, but still, you're right. How does that really help you? You know, if you got a nice house, why would you live in a little temporary booth? Because that's what I think about people who like to camp. But uh, that's another question. <laughs> John. I think that uh, every generation, we kind of think we might have to make that assessment. And that's not the case. Every generation must make that assessment. We have to continually look at it. And our children have to look at it. And we discuss these things with our, these things with our children so that Amen. That is exactly right. Our goal is never just to keep doing what our parents and grandparents did. Our goal is always seeking to know what God wants and continuing to change anything we need to to fit with what the Lord says. Tim. Good point. I agree with that. Yes, Joe.
Yeah, which is impressive. William. I was going to say, because like in verse 18, it says they continue to keep reading. So the whole time they're still reading. And that tells me what, what impo- what's important is that even though this might have seemed silly to the outsiders, um, they were constantly getting themselves in the word. And so the more you buy into the culture of the people outside, the, the sillier it's going to look to follow what God says. But the more you keep yourself in the culture of God's word, then it's not going to matter what the other cultures, the other thought processes are, because you're focused on what matters. Sure. And so we read it that first day, the second day. Now we're reading it every day of the seven-day feast. There's a lot of Bible reading here, and that's a part of what's really transforming the hearts of these people. That changing us is really more important than the physical wall itself. Scott. Amen. Exactly. Stephen. In 2 Chronicles 35.18 is where I went to for Josiah's. There had not been celebrated a Passover like it in Israel. Not that there hadn't been a Passover. Uh, but he, he celebrated more enthusiastically or whatever. I think that's the case with Josiah. We know about Hezekiah's Passover, for example. There's a lot of emphasis on that. I think that's true with the Feast of Tabernacles also. There are several historical references to celebrating it. The question isn't whether or not they celebrated it. But did they celebrate it like they did? I'm not sure what all there was about Josiah's, maybe just the enthusiasm and vigor. But here with uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, it seems to me like the part they're doing differently is this camping out aspect of that. So I think they were still observing festivals, but maybe not doing it in Josiah's case with as much uh, enthusiasm and eagerness and here, perhaps observing this detail of the law about the feast. That would be my take. There's probably other options, but anything else? Chapter 9, verses uh, 1 to 4. Israelites separated themselves from all corners and stood in 
confess their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. They stood up in their place and read from the book, from the, book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of a day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the, on the, stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Adniel, Shebaniah, Bani, Sherebiah, Bani, and Hanan. Uh, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Okay. Now, the Feast of the Tabernacles would have lasted from the 15th to the 22nd day of this seventh month. Two days later, on the 24th day of the month, they come together, and what are they doing here? Confessing. Right, they're confessing their sins to God, their sins, the sins of their forefathers, with fasting, sackcloth, dirt on them. They're grieving those sins. Um, and how long do they do that confession part for? A fourth of the day. Now, if we have a 12-hour day, that'd be like three hours. It's a lot of confessing. And then what did they do for another fourth of the day? Worship. Well, that's they're worshiping and confessing for a fourth. What do they do for another fourth? They read from the they read from the law as if they hadn't been doing that enough already. They want more of that. It's amazing what reading from the book of the law does for them. And so I think both of those points deserve some serious thought. I mean, the fact that they're reading again from the book of the law, I think, leads to what you see in the rest of chapter nine and ten. The more we read from the law and really pay attention to it with an open heart, the more it transforms us. And, and the more it leads us to confessing our sins. And I'm afraid that's something that we don't do as well as we should. Think about your own personal prayers. When you think about praying, if I were just to have asked you, name for me what are the main things we do in prayer. I bet I would have gotten thanks. I would have gotten requests. Maybe I would have gotten intercession, requesting for other people. I think maybe in this group I would have gotten some, some answers to praise God, which is good. But I wonder how many of us would have just said confessing our sins. You know, I don't think in my praying that has been as prominent an element as what it should be biblically. For one thing, confession of sins can get to be very routine. It's like, Father, please forgive me of all my sins. Well, that's not, it's not, certainly not bad to ask for forgiveness, but, but is saying, God, forgive me of all my sins, really confessing my sins? That's a pretty easy, light thing to say. But confessing sins would be talking about what my sins are to God and asking for forgiveness and apologizing really for those sins specifically. You know, grieving those sins. I don't like to think about my sins. You know, that's uh, just uncomfortable. It's, uh, it makes you sad, uh, maybe tense. Uh, maybe convicted of the need to change. And so it's a lot easier just to say, God, please forgive me of my sins. 
you know, after all, you know we're human. We sin a lot. I hear that every once in a while in public prayer. And it's like, well, that's not really taking responsibility. I mean, I don't know. Has anybody ever done anything against you? You know, it really kind of hurt you. And what do you think if they say, well, if I hurt you, I'm sorry. Is that really kind of what you want from that? Wouldn't you like for them to take more responsibility? I'm really sorry. I know I lied about you and I hurt your reputation. And, and I, I grieve about that. And, you know, you would like for them to, to acknowledge more fully what they've done. When I hear public prayers, I don't hear very much of that. And so it makes me think that, I wonder if in our private prayers we don't do any more of that than we do in our public prayer. So this, it's encouraging to me that they spend the time here to confess their sins. They're really acknowledging to God what they've done wrong. Really, the prayer that follows here is going to be largely that, and we're going to see some of how they did that. But I think we need to think about that more. Thoughts and comments? Scott? It's kind of like a marriage. Apology for important part of marriage is sometimes you see what's going to fall. You see what's going to fall. You You know what we tend to do with our wives, just bring them some flowers. <laughs> that way we don't have to admit we did wrong. You know, it's kind of trying to say, you know, well, I'll be nice to you now. And it, it really is hurtful in a personal relationship when somebody won't specifically acknowledge what they've done wrong. It's embarrassing. It's humbling. I don't like to say what I've done wrong. That's very, that's very uncomfortable. I think most of us feel that way. That's a part of maintaining a good relationship. It's a part of really taking responsibility for what we've done. Jeff? Well, part of that idea is the routineness of it. It's like the routineness of the sin. We end up saying, Lord, we, you know we sin every day and we sin all the time. Well, number one, we shouldn't. <laughs> and number two, what we're really saying is this is to be expected and it's not going to change. And, you know, neither of those ideas are It's like it doesn't bother you know, we just kind of accept it as a part of our life. You know, if if we did say to our wife, you know, wife, well, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm sorry for this again, you know, whatever. But it just it doesn't seem to really come from the heart and express grief. Then that's not adequate. Fine. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know, we need to think more about the grief the Lord experiences because of our sins, how it hurts Him, how much the Lord loves us and has done for us, and how horrible it is to Him when we hurt Him like that, and, and, and really acknowledge that. You know the other thing, with God, He knows. You know, if we, if we try to brazen it out and not admit it, it's not like we're hiding it from him. He already knows. We need to acknowledge what he knows. Other thoughts? 
Joe. Certainly the aspect of toward God and the need to follow it, but it's good for our own selves. Psalm 51, 32, for example. We need it for ourselves to confess. You're exactly right. And you know what happens. We don't deal with our sins. We don't confess them. We don't repent of them. We try to just kind of uh, close our eyes and not deal with them. And what does that leave inside of us? Guilt and stress and tension and eventually some frustration and kind of a wall. We kind of withdraw from good people, from the Lord, because we've not really dealt with this uh, infection inside of us. You know, this disease inside of us. We're just kind of trying to close our eyes to it, not really acknowledge it, but it's there. And it just leaves us more and more alienated from the Lord. If we don't deal with guilt right, it'll destroy us. We need to acknowledge it fully and come humbly seeking forgiveness with repentance, with a determination to change and a a reliance on the Lord's strength to be able to do that. Dealing with our sins correctly is an important thing in our spiritual life. But I think that's not... I think we, we struggle with that a lot of times. Now what you see going on from this is interesting. Here the people have all come together, and these Levites lead them in prayer. And this is quite a prayer. You know, and, and it's a long prayer for the Bible. And I think it's interesting that they talk about a lot of things in prayer. You know... Can you develop a close friendship with somebody if you never spend any time with them and you never talk to them? Maybe you don't hate each other, but you're not going to really be close to each other if you don't spend any time together. Sometimes we try to develop closeness with God without spending hardly any time talking with Him or listening to Him. And that's not realistic. Um, This prayer uh, goes back and recalls a lot of the things that God has done for them as a people over a long period of time. And it helps us to go back and recall what God has done. So look at what he says here. In verse 5, these Levites say, Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord you have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. So what did they start with in this prayer? Praise. Praise. For what? For what? The earth. The earth. What about the earth? How God has made it. God's made everything. They praise God as the creator that shows God's power and strength. And what particularly did God make? Several things. What did he make? The seas and the earth and the heavens. What does it mean when it says God made the heavens? 
the sky. And what else did he make? Not only the heavens themselves, but... Yeah, the heaven of heavens and their host. What's the host? The stars, the planets, and all that. What does the host do? Bows down before God and praises Him. By their very existence, the stars praise and glorify God. Now, we know from Deuteronomy that there were a lot of times the people worshipped the heavenly hosts. What they need to know is the heavenly hosts worship the Lord. It's interesting that, you know, even the inanimate objects that God made worship Him, why don't these why haven't these Israelites worshipped and served God? But not only did God make all of these things, what else in verse 6 did God essentially make? Life. He's the one that gave the life to the things that he made. So that's how they begin the prayer, with praise to God as the creator. And then in verse 7, you are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of the Ur of the Chaldees, and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite, of the Hittite, of the Amorite, Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite to give it to his descendants. And you have fulfilled your promise for you are righteous. So we move a step farther. We focus on God's dealings with who? Okay, Abraham. And what's the focus in 7, 8, and 8? Look at the verbs. Uh, who, name, name the verb starting in verse 7. What's the first verb? Okay, really are, but okay, let's say chose. <laughs> who, who chose? That's the next verb. Brought. Who brought? God. Who's the next verb? Gave. And who gave? God. And what's the next verb? And who found? God. You see the pattern here? You know, the whole focus is on what God has done. They are glorifying and praising God for what he's done. Now, Abraham was their great forefather. But it wasn't that Abraham was so great and powerful and capable. Their whole relationship through Abraham came by God's initiative. Notice that God made these, this promise to give him the land. And what had God done about that promise in the end of verse 8? He kept his promise. Why did God keep his promise? He is righteous. He is righteous. He is a reliable God. He's a faithful God. He is a God who in his character keeps his promises. He keeps his commitments. He does what he says he'll do. You know anybody who doesn't do like that? Perhaps the people who are uh, saying this. You know, as they emphasize things about God, eventually we're going to see that they weren't like God in that. They emphasize how faithful and reliable God is, what good character he has, in contrast with their lack of that. And we will continue working on this prayer uh, this evening, Lord willing, and see what happens as a result of the prayer they pray. Thank you for your comments and uh, for your attention. And so five minutes to class, anything else I need to say?